The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Quite lucky today to have uh, Bob Seek uh, talk to us about launch operations. Um, Bob joined uh, NASA early in his career after a, a spell with the Air Force. This was in the early 60s. And he worked on pre-launch checkout and servicing of Gemini and Apollo, then went into the shuttle program. He worked on ground operations for the approach and landing tests. Uh, we'll hear more about that testing when Gordon Fullerton uh, comes here um, at the beginning of December. Um, and then he, uh, he worked as uh, launch director for uh, a lot of the early shuttle missions, uh, including my first flight, and then went to be uh, the shuttle operations director at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, but then after the Challenger accident, he came back and worked on another, I don't know, 40 or so launches. So with the exception, I think my last launch was in 96. You had already graduated, right? But, but, uh, but Bob was the launch director of four of uh, the first four of, of my flights. And, and uh, so you know, he's the head of the, the whole team of really thousands of people who are responsible for getting the shuttle ready to fly and for certifying that, in fact, it is ready to fly. And that's a it's a very complicated, uh, critical, uh, and from a safety point of view, absolutely one of the most important things that we do is to figure out when this incredibly complex vehicle is really ready to go. So um, Bob's going to talk to us uh, both about some of the aspects, the technical aspects of the launch operations, um, but also I hope that you know from a systems engineering point of view. Uh, we'll have a chance towards the end to talk about some of the planning that was going on while the shuttle was being designed and some of the compromises which had to be made, which we've, some of which we've already addressed between the uh, efficiency of turning around and maintaining a vehicle like the shuttle vis-a-vis uh, -vis the actual initial upfront cost of it. So um, with that as an introduction, Bob, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. Uh, as Jeff indicated, I uh, I got into the business of launching people and payloads into space a long time ago. Uh, I was privileged to be part of all of the human spaceflight programs, so I I did a lot of that. What I didn't do, I I saw most of, and and I have an opinion on all of it. So please ask questions. If I don't have the answer, I'm uh, I'm sure to have a, an opinion. <laughs> I'm going to spend a little bit of time. We talk about launch operations, but that's the final three to four days of a campaign that begins three to four months before you actually start the countdown clocks and, and, uh, and put the astronauts in the vehicle and go fly. So I'm, I'm going to spend some time on the background of preparing the shuttle, the ground systems, the flight systems, uh, 
prior to the launch count process, particularly to talk about the, the engineering involvement and the responsibilities in those processes. But in order to talk about launching, I have to talk some about the operations of putting the final pieces together and, uh, and doing the tests and inspection prior to launch. And then when I, I want to get into the real meat of it, which is the, the human factors, the, the role of the engineer, the role of the managers in the process of, of testing, inspecting, checking the flight systems, the ground systems, and certifying that it's okay uh, to put the crew in and go fly. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time, but I've got to go through some background first. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to the Kennedy Space Center. Any, anybody been down to? Okay, so you've 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 seen it. It's a city where we launch. We've launched everything from since the beginning programs: Mercury, Gemini, Apollo. Uh, the most prominent fixture is this vehicle assembly building, which is was used in the Apollo program to put together the 300-foot-tall Saturn Apollo rocket. Shuttle is about half that size, but we use this building to do the assembly, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But it's a city. We have our own power systems. We have facilities to check out the orbiters, to process the solid rocket motors. We have administrative homes for the, uh, for the people, and, of course, we have the, the highly visible launch pads that are uh, out on the, on the ocean. And we also have a runway when the weather is cooperates and we can bring the shuttles back to Florida. Uh, we can take care of the landing and recovery there. The process. Let's talk a little bit about the process. When an orbiter returns from its previous mission, uh, it goes through essentially a um, disassembly inspection and then build it back up and test it to make sure that it's still within the certification base uh, that the engineers set up for it that you've already heard from uh, previous to this lecture. It, it, you would like to think that if the orbiter flies and the rest of the elements a successful mission, you could just do it like an airplane, uh, take down the, the down cargo, whatever, get it configured for the next payload that's going to go go up clean the windshield, so to speak, and the crew cabin, and go fly it again. But the rules don't allow you to do that. The rules that the other engineers that talk to you have set up uh, are such that you have to assume that in some way, even though during the mission everything seemed to work okay, that that hardware was compromised through the process of reentering, landing, refurbishing those systems that have to be refurbished, you, something may have been invalidated. So you have to test all that stuff that worked just fine in the previous mission, plus all of the, the systems that were not used in the previous mission, particularly the backup systems, the things that you would have to rely on in the event that the primary system uh, doesn't cooperate during the next mission. And because of the way the orbiter was built, with its miles of wiring and thousands of components that are active components, uh, you have to disassemble a lot of that stuff in order to meet the requirements that the program is levied on. So after the orbiter lands and, and you get it safe and, and the crew is out, 
and you take out the payload, we spend a minimum of two to three months, roughly a quarter million labor hours of touch labor on the orbiter to do this disassembly, test, inspection, refurbishment process. Before we uh, remove it from the hangar, take it to that vehicle assembly building, integrate it with the tank and the solid rocket boosters, and take it on out to the launch pad to go fly again. Um, and that's where the lion's share of the work is. The, the work on the tank, the payload, and the solid rocket boosters is all peripheral to the processing of the orbiter. Yes, sir. We find very few, very few. And you could do the trade-off of, well, is this effort worth it? But on the other hand, the few that you find, you're glad that you found them because if not, you may not have discovered them until you got out to the launch pad and serviced your hazardous systems, or worse yet, you find out when you get in, in the mission. And then the, the impact of that could be not only a safety impact, but could be a higher consequence than spending the month to two months in the orbiter processing facility doing that work. Yes. But is there a learning curve? I mean, uh, we look at it and say, you know, this system is performing just fine, so we don't have to do this intense, invasive inspection and test. Every flight, maybe we can just do it once a calendar year or every two to three missions, whatever the designer thinks, you know, is, is the criteria for checking on the health of the system. And we've done that over the years. And after we've had a couple of years of, of missions where everything is working just fine, we start relaxing these requirements. And then something like Challenger happens or something like Columbia happens. And the pendulum of conservatism swings the other direction. And we do more tests and more inspections to verify the hardware because people want to be able to say, and we want to be able to say, well, we've done everything possible to make sure that that's a 100% functional, operating, safe orbiter. And, and so getting, getting this process down to where it meets the original advertising brochure, which was, you know, we're going to fly these things every two to three weeks, uh, you start in that direction, and then events occur either during a mission or you have the really bad incidents like Challenger in Columbia, and the conservatism swings the other way, and you end up doing more work. And in addition to that, engineers, because, because we are what we were, are, I was one, we, we have all this hardware available. We like to modify it. We change it. You know, we upgrade it because there's new technology available in computers or in composite materials. So when the orbiter gets to this processing facility, regardless of how well the mission flew, the designers, with their good intentions, say, hey, you know, we want this orbiter to last another five years or 10 years, so we want you to do this upgrade to the avionics system. Or we want to change out all of the actuators that hold the payload in the payload bay, and this and that. So you modify, and that adds more time. It makes it more complexity to the process, which invites more tests and inspections. 
So it, you're constantly in a mode where, unfortunately, if the mission flies perfectly, by the time you get it and you plan your campaign through the processing facility, uh, and I'll show wrong way. Um, you plan your campaign with schedules to last two months, maybe. Roughly a third of the work you do is work that you hadn't planned when you initially brought that orbiter into the orbiter processing facility. It's non-standard work. It's stuff that you uncover in the process of doing your test or inspection, or it's new requirements or new changes that come from the designers that have to be implemented. And from an efficiency standpoint, if you're in the manufacturing or production business, that is not efficient. If a third of your work that you laid out for the next two months, uh, at the end of that two-month period, a third of it was stuff that you had not planned on doing, which means you don't have the parts ready, you don't have the engineering, you don't have the instructions yet. Do you build in time to cope with that now, now that you know that... In contingency time, yes. Yeah, you... you we set up our operation, and let me go. Let me go back to that. Um, we set up our team and our operation to run five days a week, two shifts a day, uh, and leaving the weekends free to catch up for this non-standard stuff. We essentially end up running a six-day work week if we're in a in a standard template of flying three three missions a year, which we're not now because we're still recovering from the Columbia accident. But we end up working six days a week, and and roughly every three or four days we'll work a continuous round-the-clock 24-hour operation. So we try to maintain that original schedule, but we only make it roughly 50% of the time due to, this again, the non-standard work. The, uh, the extra stuff that works its way in. And that's why, you know, we have a big team. You know, the, the, our team is made up of the United Space Alliance as a contractor. They do the hands-on work. They have the technicians. They have the engineers that staff the consoles. And they're roughly 6,000 population at Kennedy Space Center. They take care of the orbiter, the tanks, the boosters. Um, they're responsible for maintaining all of our equipment that hooks into the shuttle that's required to process it and service it. Uh, and they have, they have ties to the contractors, the original equipment manufacturers that built the hardware. So technically, they can gain access to all the original manufacturer records for the parts that are in the shuttle. The NASA responsibility, and I need to go back. NASA owns the requirements for the shuttle. We, we've delegated all the operational work to the contractors, but it's a national resource. You know, taxpayers paid for it. Government has a responsibility. They, they, they can't divest themselves from that. So NASA owns the requirements, the requirements for saying what you test, what you inspect, um, and what the specifications are for acceptable performance of that. That's controlled by NASA. Uh, the management of the contractor at Kennedy is done by NASA engineers in an organization. There's roughly 
500 people out of the 2,000 population at Kennedy Space Center of civil service people. 500 are directly associated with the shuttle. The rest do payload work. Space Station, of course, is a big, uh, big work item now at, at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and they're responsible for the requirements. If somebody wants to change a requirement, a NASA person has to approve that change. Uh, and we do insight into everything the contractor does. We have uh, at each one of the, um, I'll get there, at each one of the milestones when we leave the processing facility, when we leave the vehicle assembly building, and when we get ready to launch, there's a review conducted by NASA to review the, the work that was done by the contractor during the preceding weeks or months. And NASA approves moving the vehicle on to the next stage of its assembly prior to launch. Um, and the launch director specifically is responsible not only for that, those last few days of the campaign, so to speak, leading up to launch, but also ensuring that the, the team, the government contractor team, has all the tools available to them to be successful. You know, is the work being scheduled in an orderly fashion? Uh, is the budget, <laughs> the ever-tightening budget, constraining their ability to get their work done? Is there too much schedule pressure to meet a milestone? That's the launch director's job. So the launch director doesn't just come in the last three days of the campaign with the, you know, the tie and the suit and, and orchestrate the countdown. They have a responsibility from the beginning to the end of the campaign. Engineering, I, I've, I've already addressed this, but the NASA engineers manage the requirements, the changes to the requirements. Uh, they're the ones that, in addition to the contractor, this is a check and balance. They look at all of the, the data, the engineering results of the tests and the inspections, and they approve that they met the requirements also. They participate in critical operations. A critical operation is a, is a test on a specific system, uh, servicing of the vehicle for launch count, or any of the non-standard work that comes up during the, the process. They audit what the contractor does, and of course, because the contractor you know, we're the customer, they're the contractor. We have a lot of criteria to grade them on for their award fee performance. Uh, the operations people manage the scheduling. You know, as I indicated, you know, we, we like to work five days a week, two shifts a day. We really end up working six days a week and sometimes around the clock. So the scheduling activity is dynamic, and NASA approves all the schedule. We have to approve all the overtime. You know, we have the authority to say stop or go, not only in launch counts, but anywhere in the campaign of processing the hardware, as well as the big picture schedule. You know, how many times a year you're going to fly and which orbiter is assigned to which payload and, and those missions. That's still a NASA responsibility. Orbiter processing facility, like I mentioned before, this is, it's like a hangar for an airplane. Uh, big part of the work effort used to be the tiles. Uh, there's, I think you already had a presentation on tile, and there's, you know, 25 to 30,000 of these little bricks glued to the vehicle. Uh, we classically pull, damage about 100 of them on each mission due to ice and things coming off the tank. 
that have to be replaced, but we also pull another 100 or so off just to inspect the integrity of the glue that's holding the tile to the structure of the vehicle because a lot of those little bricks have been glued on there for 25 years and they've flown 20 to 30 missions. So they're, you know, they're, you, although we have offline test programs that try to duplicate the environment that the tile sees either from a calendar standpoint or the, the thermal cycles of the mission, uh, you like to go to the real hardware and see what's happening. So we, we do that in, invasive type of work of actually destroying tile, pulling it off the vehicle just to make sure that the aging process is, uh, is not causing any degradation of the system. We pull the engines out um, and do the maintenance on the engines offline because the aft fuselage of the orbiter is a terrible place to work. So any of the hardware we can get out of there and do it on the bench, it's much better to do, to do that than to try to do it in the vehicle with people crawling all over wire bundles and structure and that sort of thing. The concern about the collateral damage uh, to do the other work in that compartment of the vehicle where the, where the engines are. Of course, you've got to take the accommodations from the previous mission out of the payload bay and put in the new stuff for the next mission. Uh, I already mentioned modifications, and yeah, we unfortunately we change more stuff uh, than we probably should. But in order to keep up with the aging of the vehicle and the new technology, that's that goes with the territory of, of flying uh, a system that was designed over 30 years ago. And we prepare it for the next milestone, which is the the vehicle assembly building operations. This is where we put the big pieces together. Uh, the, the solid rocket boosters are stacked. There's four segments in each booster. That's a very critical process, but only takes, well, it takes less than a month uh, to do that. The ex external tank comes in essentially ready to fly from uh, Mississippi, except as you know now, because of the Columbia accident, we're still looking at the at the ramifications of uh, these these lines and and other fittings on the tank, the acreage foam on the tank, just to digress a little bit, is sprayed on, and that stuff is tough. Yeah, early in the program, we had problems with some of that coming off, uh, but we solved that years ago. What we haven't solved is where you have to do a manual application of foam over a fitting that is there because that's where the cranes attach to it or because there's a line there that has to be installed at Kennedy Space Center. You can't do it back at the factory. Putting that thermal protection system foam on there, it's a, it's a labor-intensive process. It's a critical technique process. And obviously, there's still flaws in the process that the engineers haven't sorted out yet, and that's why that stuff keeps coming off the tank in those places. But we attach the, um, the solid rocket motors are attached to this mobile launch platform with, with four bolts, the diameter of my wrist. This is, this is the, the structural engineers really figured this out good. Uh, so there's four on each one of those that are attached to the launch platform. The tank is attached to the boosters with four attach points. Uh, and those are bolts, again, that are diameter of my wrist. And then the orbiter is hung on the tank in three places with the same size bolts. 
So you've got six million pounds of, of weight that's attached to the mobile launch platform that's held up by these four bolts, well, eight total on the uh, solid rocket motors. And, uh, and they've worked out the dynamics of when the engines start because the, the vehicle sways like this because the center of gravity is not right over where those eight bolts are attached. Uh, and that system works fine, but it always amazed me that you could hang that much weight on those few bolts that are only the diameter of, uh, of this. But it works. It works. So the Orbiter is brought over after its campaign. It's hung on the tank, and we, uh, we test all those connections between the solid rocket booster, the platform, the tank, and the Orbiter. And that only takes about a week to do that. And if that looks good, we have a review of all of that work. And if the review says we didn't leave anything undone, uh, that we shouldn't take out the launch pad, then we go out to the launch pad. Say a little bit about how this differs from just bringing a car in to have a 50,000-mile checkup. That is, the, the clean room aspects, the following of procedures, sure. having a checker. Well, <coughs> a 50,000-mile a, a checkup on a car is usually an, an external inspection. You know, you change the oil and the filter and you check all the belts and the radiator hoses and, and you, you change all the fluids. <coughs> well, you do that with the orbiter also, but in the case of the orbiter, you, you want to know whether you're this far away from having to do a valve job or the rings in the engine, you know, have now got so many thousand miles on them. So we have the, the equivalent. You take the heads off the engine and you give it a valve job, and you take the pistons out of the block, and you check for scoring in the block. Uh, you take the transmission out, and you pull the gears out and make sure that the synchronizers are still okay. You know, and you go through the rear, and you, and you take all the avionics out, or you connect the avionics, you, you take your carry-on test equipment in, and you hook it up to these connectors on the airflow meter and the computer in your vehicle, and you run all those diagnostics to make sure all that stuff, even though it worked fine after you turned the ignition key off the last time, that, that, that all the redundancies and all the capability is still within that hardware, and all the margins are still there. And then you button it back up, and you make sure you buttoned it back up properly. Pre-established, quite rigid flowcharts, checklists. Oh yeah, yeah. A, che a, a checker checking the checker. A checker, and you have in, you have inspectors that where there's critical things. If you're torquing the connecting rods onto the crankshaft, you know it says you got to do those bolts at 50 thumb foot pounds, and the technician will do that, and there'll be an inspector there verifying that yeah, he, you know he set the torque wrench at 50 foot pounds, and it really clicked there, and they stamped the procedure that it was done that way. Yeah, I, I, I want to just add to that, I mean, even more emphasis. You don't do anything to the vehicle or to the payload unless you have a written procedure. What, right. what, what is absolutely not allowed is, oh, there's a little problem. Something didn't work the way it was supposed to in the test. Let's just fiddle around. Let's throw a few switches and, and see what, what happens. Well, I mean... That's, yeah. that's normally the way you, you work at things if you're in a laboratory or, or working in your car. Um, but the thing is you, you need absolute traceability because if, if something later on turns up, 
uh, out of spec or, or there's an anomaly during flight, you need to be able to recreate everything that was done to the orbiter. That's why we keep such uh, good records on parts. I mean, if it turns out, well, you can tell that story about the tires you just mentioned. I mean, that they, people, people keep track of where all the parts in the orbiter came from, the lot numbers. And so if any, any problem turns up, you can actually then trace on the orbiter and, and see if, if it affects there. It's the, uh, the, all the procedures, you have to, all the work is done per approved work authorization documents. Every step, every touch labor item that's done on the, on the vehicle. And if you deviate from that procedure, which is approved by engineering, you have to get engineering approval to deviate from it. Uh, the, the assembly process, the standard work process of putting the vehicle together after a mission, is there's over two million verifiable work items for the standard flow. And that doesn't include modifications or the, the, the non-standard work that comes up. You know, the proverbial glitch that occurs when you're checking out your computer system or, the, or when you pressurize the, this fluid system and the leak rate is higher than the specification allows. Well, that engineering comes in and says, okay, here's the troubleproof procedures. Here's what you're gonna pursue uh, but you don't do any of that until the engineers write the procedure and give it to the technicians or the console operators that said, okay, here's what you're going to do to try to find out the source of this leak. You don't just, as Kevin indicated, just start throwing switches and turning valves and say, well, let's see if we can find out what's going on here. It's all pre-approved. And the reason for that is when you have these reviews that culminate in the final review before you get ready to fly, you want to be able to say, that this vehicle is assembled per print, that the designer's requirements, the people you've already heard from that certified that, you know, this system will work just fine in flight if it looks like this when we launch it, you're trying to prove that this is what it looks like when you launch it and it's within the certification base and it's per the, the engineering drawings that we were given and it met all these requirements. Otherwise, you're guessing that it's okay to go fly the machine and you can't do that in this business. The, um, well, no, because they're the ones that ultimately say what goes in those two million steps. And if they want to add more tests or checks or inspections, they, uh, it's, it's within their, purview to propose that. The program, there's a group of senior engineers that are in these what we call control boards that approve the requirements that are implemented at Kennedy Space Center. And they can say, yeah, that's a good idea. Or no, we don't want to change this. Go back and give us more rationale for what you think is a good idea to do to this system. Uh, so in that respect, it's probably somewhat frustrating for the engineers because they can't do anything different than last time unless they can justify the rationale for it, but that's the way it ought to be. Good. Okay, um, the launch pad. It's um, the facilities at the launch pad are uh, pretty simple. These are the 
same launch pad we flew from in Apollo. Uh, we've got storage facilities for the liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. We, uh, we try to spend a minimum amount of time at the launch pad because it's pretty, Florida's a nice place to be on spring break, but it's a bad place to have exotic hardware sitting outdoors with all that salt and <laughs> humidity and the other elements that Mother Nature throws at you like lightning and you can see on the, uh, well, I think you can see down here, we have a, we have a good lightning protection system. It's, there's a single mast with, a, with two wires uh, that go out about a half a mile from the launch pad. It makes a good Faraday shield. Uh, and over the years, we've been whacked uh, a lot of times with lightning. In fact, it's a good attraction for lightning, and we've never gotten enough energy inside of that Faraday shield to, to damage any hardware. However, when we get lightning down there, we tell the workers to stand down and, of course, keep safe haven. But it, we've instrumented it, and, and it's, it's taken some big hits, but we haven't gotten anything major inside that uh, would cause us a problem from electro. After you take the shuttle out to the launch pad, is it very expensive to you know, roll it back when you, find, when you find a problem and then bring it back out? Yes, it is. And that's why we have these reviews before we commit it to go to the launch pad to make sure that we're not taking any unknowns or any work out to the launch pad that should rightfully be done either in the vehicle assembly building or further back in the orbiter processing facility. So yeah, it's a lengthy process because it takes about a week to hook everything up at the pad and check it before you go into the process of servicing the propellants and doing the hazardous work, which has to all be undone if you roll back to the vehicle assembly building. So you got to be, you got to make sure you're really ready to go before you, you head on out there. Yes. The uh, going back to uh, well, it we probably have done it. Um, for technical reasons, maybe one time, 20% uh, of the time. For weather reasons, like we're worried about, you know, a hurricane or something like that, uh, the same, about 20% of the time. One out of every five times we've gone to the launch pad, we've had to come back for either a weather problem or a technical problem that either occurred at the launch pad or it's something that happened with a different vehicle in the fleet that may still be in the orbiter processing facility or a component that's similar to one that's on the shuttle that's at the pad that they were doing testing in a laboratory or doing what we call fleet leader testing at one of the NASA facilities. And they said, you know, there's an inherent flaw in this auxiliary power unit. And we have to change the ones that are in the orbiter uh, because they were manufactured at the same time or they have the same component on it, and you can't do that work out at the, at the launch pad, so you've got to roll it back. So the hardware at the pad may be just fine, you know, from the standpoint of that you followed your processes and it checked out great in the previous part of the campaign, but an offline issue can cause you to say, no, nah, we've got to roll back and go change out this hardware or fix it or further test it before we can commit it to go fly. Uh, we have a big water tower out there also, which I'll talk about later. That's uh, that's our sound suppression system. But basically, at the pad, a month is the maximum time you like to spend out there. Usually now, we used to put a lot of payloads in in the 
orbiter processing facility when we were flying laboratories and that sort of thing, space station hardware. <coughs> we install all that out at the launch pad now. Uh, and we have, um, we test all the connections. We're, you know, a, a new facility. And we have a simulated launch count with the astronauts. And this is a tradition that goes back to the Mercury program. You bring the astronauts down to the case. They go through it a, a day, two days of training, emergency egress, familiarization with the hardware. And then we have a simulated launch count without the propellants and all the hazardous stuff. Uh, just to remind, if nothing else, to remind the launch team that this is more than just a machine. You know, we're going to fly people in this thing, and this occurs roughly two weeks before launch, and it's a good, it's a good readiness test for the whole team. You know, it's serious. You know, we're a couple weeks before flight. The crew's in town. This vehicle's going to look the best it ever has, uh, and we do a simulated launch count down to within a couple seconds of liftoff, and then we do a simulated abort uh, with the spacing of the vehicle and the crew gets out. Yeah, I just add something because that's, that's always something the crew looks forward to. First of all, because you you actually get to get in the vehicle, which despite the fact that we have pretty good simulators in Houston, there's nothing like actually crawling inside the shuttle that, that you're going to fly in. Um, and, and there's a lot of safety training that you do down at the Cape, which is really kind of fun. Um, I don't think you, you, you don't have any pictures of the, the launch escape. Oh, the, the, the slide the, wire the pad slide wire. No, they, I don't think you know, in, there, there's a requirement that, that you need to be able to get, get off the pad quickly if there's a, a launch uh, emergency. And, of course, on the real launch day, unlike the simulated countdown where the pad is crawling with people, on launch day, there's, there's very few people, even when you're getting into the vehicle because it's fueled and then everybody else leaves. And so they have the, this big slide wire uh, that where if you have to get out of the orbiter in a hurry, you, you go out and you jump in the bag and you hit a little guillotine and it cuts you loose and you slide all the way down. Actually, in the early days, the astronauts kept saying, well, we need to try this out. And, and they said, no, you can't do it because uh, it hasn't been man-rated. They said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> they said, well, it's, it's rated for emergency use only, so you can't try it out. But the other thing, and, and then after Challenger, they, they insisted that somebody actually ride down in it. And normally, we don't. But the other, the other things that you do. No, 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 just, just one person tried it out. Um, but the, um, the other things that, that you do, once you get down to the bottom, there's a, an underground bunker that, that you run into. And either you stay there and wait for help, or they have these armored personnel carriers sitting around there with a tank, little tanks, which which you get in, you've got to be able to drive your tank. They have a breakout section of the fence, so you drive the tank through the fence out to a helicopter pickup point. So we all have to, we all, we all have to go out and, and learn how to drive the tank, and, and you know we, we we drive over the sand dunes and everything. It's and it's and and then they also, they they have a big pool which they light on fire, and 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 they give you a big fireman's hose, and you get you, they show you how to. Um, make your way through a fire by by squirting a, a water path in front of you, and it's so you know all the little things you dream of as a kid. It'd be a fireman, yeah. drive a tank. <laughs> get to go. So it's 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 good fun, but but it is part of the uh, you know the really the extensive safety procedures that they have, and and all these things 
periodically they have to exercise. So they, they do go through every once in a while a disaster drill down at the Cape where they simulate an emergency where they have to pick up the crew uh, either outside the launch pad or even out out in the uh, out in the ocean and and you got to you got to keep people at at uh, full operational readiness. So anyway, yeah, that's tra that's one of the aspects of tra training is we train for the anomalies, the non-standard things. The standard work we they do so much of that anyway. You don't have to train for that. You don't have to train to put a payload in a payload bay. You don't have to train to power up your system and run your system checkout because that's a repetitive thing. But the non-standard stuff, uh, with when things go wrong, that's where the emphasis of the training is. And it's, I guess it's a lot of, lot of fun. It's fun for the launch team too. We, uh, we have a control center at the Cape and, and it's called the Launch Control Centers, which so you would think, well, this is where you launch it from. Well, you do that, but all of the other work that's done in the preceding three months is controlled from the Launch Control Center uh, by test conductors and engineers who wrote the, the procedures and the software that implement all the requirements. And they control the activity on the orbiter or the tank or the boosters when it's still back in the offline facilities or the vehicle assembly building and out the launch pad, they do it from the launch control center. We automate what we can from there, but for the manual activity, and a lot of it is manual because regrettably you can't do all this refurbishment on the shuttle uh, with automated systems. It wasn't built that way. Uh, it is all managed from our launch control center uh, with old computers, uh, but with a great team of people. Um, the, the software we use and the computers, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail like, uh, because it's really, I mean, it is old stuff, but it works. And we, it's, it's like the software programs that the FAA uses with airplanes. You know, it's, it's hacker-proof. Uh, there's no external interfaces outside of the launch control center firewall. It's, uh, it works just fine. Uh, and that's where we do the management of our day-to-day -day operations from our launch control room, and then we call it the LPS, the Launch Processing System Software. We've tried to change it a couple of times over the years, buy new hardware. We have supplemented it with laptops so that we can do more uh, human engineering displays, but the computers are the same ones that we bought back in the late 70s. But then so are the computers that are on the orbiter that fly the mission. So. And it works. I'm, this is a bit repetitive, but I want to go through it again to, to make sure that to emphasize what the role of the engineering is. The designers that you've heard from, they certified their designs and they did extensive testing. Uh, they just like Detroit does on a car, you know, on the door latch, you know, and they have tested that door latch and said, well, this thing ought to be good for. 250,000 miles or 20 years or so many gazillion, you know, opening and closings of the door before it wears out and you got to replace it. Well, they did all that. And to make sure that that hardware is still within the certification base, they develop requirements, send them down to the Cape. We put them in procedures, either manual procedures or software to implement those requirements. 
and the team, United States Alliance of Contractors and the NASA engineers will certify at each of the milestone reviews and the process of moving the hardware out to the pad. They've met those requirements. And they did that either by participating in the activity or by in reviewing the test data. Uh, and, and that allows us to sign a certificate of flight readiness a few days before launch that all the requirements have been met. When we get into launch count, we've taken a subset of those requirements that, you know, when it's, everything is powered up and ready to go fly, all of these systems that are active ought to look like this. You know, the voltages should be between, you know, this upper limit and this lower limit. The pressure should be between here and here. These indicators should show that they're open, and these indi indicators should say that this latch is closed or the valve is closed or whatever. And we put that in what's called launch commit criteria. And that's the acceptable limit for the performance of that hardware when you're at that point, which is nine minutes before launch, when everybody commits that they're ready to go fly. And, and all those requirements, again, are implemented by uh, procedures and software. And the three days of launch count have roughly, you know, these are numbers, but about 500 requirements. There's thousands of measurements associated with those requirements. And most of the, the looking at those measurements is done by computers, obviously. But you have the engineer involved because if it's not within limits, you turn to the engineer for, you know, what's wrong? You know, is there any chance to go fix this? Or do we have to change hardware? Do we have to do troubleshooting? Uh, so it's not a hands-off operation, obviously. Going backwards. The structure of the launch team, the, uh, the launch director shows in the middle, but that doesn't mean that he or she is, uh, you know, the only one with a go or a no-go button. The engineers, the people that implement the requirements, you know, there's, a, there's roughly 150 of them in our control center, and they're the ones that provide the go, no-go for all the subsystems, uh, both flight and ground, that everything's operating within the limits. They report that to a team of test conductors, NASA and contractor, and that's reported to the launch director. You also have, there, we're not alone, obviously, we have a, uh, an engineering support area, which are all the hidden senior engineers that you don't see on television. And there's a room full of about 150 to 200 of those. And they're looking at the performance of these systems as they're activated in launch count. And they've got all the trend data, uh, the previous history of it. And they're looking at things like, well, all right, everything's in limits, but is it within family? system performed that, you know, the voltage was this or the pressure was this. Well, it's still in limits, but it's not the same as it was before. So we go look at it. Go look at more of that. Well, that's, that's for this group of engineers over here. These guys and gals are running through their procedures. And if everything was in, within limits, they just, we just turn the next page and go on to the next one. Uh, and they also have the emergency procedures. If something bad happens, these are the people that will implement the emergency procedures. But this offline support, they're out there. They're, they're the senior people. They've been there before. They've been out there who knows how many years. And they're asking questions like, well, uh, that didn't look right. 
you know, or you know, we missed that step. Go back and check it again. That's what they're for. The mission management team over here, these are the people that, 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 that do the certificate of flight readiness. These are the folks that stand up in a readiness review and say, I gave the Cape folks a good set of requirements. There's nothing that happened with the hardware that they're responsible for in all those offline facilities or on previous missions that, that have any cloud over this mission. Uh, they're responsible for certifying that and they do that through a structure of the mission management team. Uh, you've got, of course, the flight director has flight rules and the flight team that they look at during the launch count process, and you're, you're going to hear more about that from, uh, from uh, Wayne Hale. Good. Um, and they obviously have a, a go, no-go input to the launch director in the decision process also. The, uh, we have an integration activity that, look, the system engineers are each responsible for, you know, they have boundary conditions on what they're responsible for. It's these pieces of hardware, it's this wiring, it's these actuators or latches or whatever. But a lot of that stuff fits together. Integration, technical term for making sure that this person talks to this person and they're hooked in with this one. That activity uh, is done by a console in the control room, again, with senior engineers who actually manage all the automated software that, that runs the last couple hours of launch count that really launches the vehicle. And they're tied in with that. You also have the, the more subjective stuff. You know, you, we launch uh, on a public range. Public safety is, is obviously an issue, so the range has to make sure that it's safe to fly from a public standpoint. There's no boats in the launch danger area, no airplanes, and that the weather meets the criteria of being able to track the vehicle should it go off course. And of course, the payload has to certify that uh, if, if there, particularly if there's an active payload, that all of their launch permit criteria is met. And and last but certainly not least, you, you know, you have safety oversight of all of that activity. And what I don't show on there, of course, is is the flight crew, but they're obviously in communication with all of these people. So it, that's the network. Uh, but everybody out here has no-go authority. You know, anybody can come on the net or press their switch and say, hey, I got a problem. We're not going anywhere. And, and it's the launch director and the launch team's responsibility to make sure that problem is addressed, hold at the convenient, graceful to stop all the activity hold point until the issue is resolved. The real job, and I'll get into this later, the launch director is to say no when everybody else wants to go because there, as you get further into launch count, the, the, uh, the launch fever process sets in. It's a natural Got it. It's a natural thing, it seems to be. People want to go. I want to just talk a little bit about the There are flight rules and the launch, and the launch decision. There are flight rules that say you, can't, you must scrub if these conditions are not right. Good. And yet there is a tendency to, have to, to allow judgment to come in. If a, let's take an example of a limit on crosswind at the, at the landing for the return to Right. You see it go above, above limits, if you look at the rules strictly it says no you can't go, 
the, the, um, <coughs> that's what we use the, the mission management team for. If there's, and you bring up the weather example, most of the stuff is pretty straightforward. You know, if the, either the voltage, pressure, temperature is in limits or out of limits. Um, person can question that, say, I don't like the trend, and you've got to stop and clear the air if they say, I want a, more discussion on this, I want more data review, and that sort of thing. That's when we revert to the, if, if it's a discussion like that between, uh, that, that involves activity outside of the control room, beyond the, the purview of the console operators that are running through the procedure, we, re we rely on the mission management team to manage that activity. So the console operators can concentrate on their launch permit criteria and their procedures and their, their software. So something like crosswind limits, if there's a debate with the flight director and the weather people, uh, we hold the clock and the mission management team, that's yours. You know, you manage it and, and whatever you have to do to resolve the decision, you know, we'll scrub if need be, we'll hold if need be, or if, if the community can get comfortable that these crosswinds that are peaking occasionally out of spec, that's okay to go fly anyway, then we'll wait to hear from the flight director that that's okay. But we, we don't insulate the control room from that, but we don't want to burden the control center with working what is an offline issue. And it's up to the mission management team to disposition that. And you bring up weather because weather is one of the few things that there's really a lot of judgment still involved in, you know, is the weather good enough to go fly? And it's, and it's probably the only thing that's in that category because everybody has an opinion on the weather. And Florida weather's dynamic and there's usually, unless it's winter time, there's clouds and, and there's always a tendency if you've held for weather or the weather's marginal to hold longer to see if, you know, the weather gets better. And the real issue for the launch director is to try to convince people if the weather's good enough, then this is good enough. And yeah, you could wait longer for us to get better, but it's good enough. We're running out of window time, you know. All the time we sit here on the ground with all these systems, you know, humming along, the probability of some glitch or something coming up to scrub you is increased. So, and just, I mean, as a personal note, when I was in the Air Force, I was a weather forecaster for missile operations. And, and I felt that that was a waste of an engineer's time because, you know, I was a graduate engineer with my diploma sticking out of my pocket. You know, I wanted to go launch missiles and rockets and the Air Force said, no, you're going to, Lieutenant Seek is going to be a weather forecaster supporting missile and operations. So I endured that for a couple of years and put all of that uh, experience in my hip pocket. And I didn't need it until I got in this launch director job. And I spent many hours talking to the weather people who provide the forecast for the launch, uh, going over all of the, the data you know, and, and the technical aspects of the weather situation to see if, you know, if there was, if it was prudent to sit here any longer and wait for the weather to improve or whether it's better to, to uh, scrub, get these guys out of their uncomfortable suits and send them back to crew quarters and recycle for the next day. And I didn't they, they won't necessarily scrub, but you have to disposition their concern, and you will hold until their concern is taken care of. Yes. Yes. Um, 
you know how the Russians have, uh, in going out to the launch pad, they use um, they use um, a rail track and they, they, they have a rocket flat. Can you do that with the shuttle? Instead of stacking it like this and then pulling it out, would it, would it be better, easier? Would that ever be Well, the, the problem the problem with that is that is the solid rocket spooky. You know, they weigh approximately when they're assembled uh, a little less than three million pounds apiece. And the joints that cause the Challenger accident are, you know, they're critical. And I don't know if we went through the the, the technical aspects of the the design, but these things are 14 feet in diameter. You know, each segment weighs. 300,000 pounds, and they have these two clevises that come together with O-rings in there. And and what caused the Challenger accident was there was rotation in these joints to the point where the O-rings, because of cold weather, weren't making a good feel, and it caused a gap path, and it, it got 1,200-degree temperature uh, exhaust plume just cut through the metal once it, it found the path. So you want to maintain the integrity of these joints. So if you stack them horizontally, and that could be done, and then you lift this thing vertically, the joints aren't certified to maintain their integrity doing that. Plus, you'd need some kind of huge crane to you know, pull the you know, 3 million pounds from horizontal to vertical. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's something that could have been done had it been built into the design at the beginning. And the Russians have a tradition of doing this. Yeah. And so that's the way they design their rockets. You know, for whatever reason, that's we never started that way. No. From the very beginning, our rockets got stacked vertically, and that's the way all of the American rockets have been designed. Yes. The the launch director is whether it's flight what actually. That mission management team is responsible for the flight worthiness because they encompass not only the you know watching what you did in launch count, but the certification of all this hardware before it even got to the launch pad. And an alternate, the launch director is responsible for conducting an orderly launch and making sure that that this mission management team doesn't have any issues, that that engineering team doesn't have that the the console operators have really completed their procedures. That's that's their responsibility. And if there's any fuzz on that, so to speak, even though console operators say they go and mission management team says they go and flight says they go, if there's any concern about that, it's the launch director's job to say, no, we're not going to go fly today. You know, we're going to give you another day or two days to do more homework, look at more data, uh, have more discussions. We're going to scrub today, even though everybody may say we're go. And that's happened before, you know, and 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 I always wondered after not too many times when I've said no and everybody wants to go, whether I'll get the phone call saying, well, I'm glad you made us safe today, Sheik, but you don't have this job tomorrow. You know, well, I never got that call. Never did. Uh, the process, not to bore you with, but it, since it's an operation, normally we – we try to launch on in the middle of a week, Wednesday or Thursday, so we usually take the weekend off before that to clean up everything, give the launch team a rest. So we power up everything, and that's the way we start the process, and that's a couple of shifts worth of work uh, to bring up the ground systems, the flight systems, make sure that all the avionics hardware really comes to life, 
uh, and we put in a no work hold at the end of that to take care of any problems. Uh, if that all goes well, then we get into the more critical activity uh, that has time constraints associated with it. We load the fuel cell, that's the power plants in the orbiter reactants, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, because they have limited life. Even if you don't have the fuel cells activated, that stuff boils off and you lose it, and that could count against your mission capability. And that's a hazardous operation also. Uh, and then we put in another no work hold at the end of that. Uh, and then we have a, a period of time where we do the final, bring up the final systems, put in the time critical storage, particularly when we're flying laboratories and you, you put in you know, plants or critters or whatever it may be in the, uh, either in the crew module or the payload bay. And the last 12 hours down here is when, you know, is when you really got to make sure this is a real decision point right here. Are we going to load the external tank, put a cycle on the tank, you know, which, and, and we know that, you know, putting liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, you know, is roughly half a million gallons in the tank, uh, as it, you know, puts stresses into the hardware. Uh, you really don't want to do that unless you're pretty sure you're going to launch that day or that night. So yeah, we have a, a meeting before that to make sure the weather looks pretty good, that, that the mission management team is not working any offline ickies. Uh, and that's happened before. You know, a war story for you. The, uh, uh, in you know, the early 80s in one of our missions, we were we assembled the, the mission management team to decide whether or not we ought to go load the external tank and go fly. Everything looked pretty good. And the orbiter project manager said, well, I need to make you aware of this. I just got a, a fax, a telegram from the manufacturers of the, the tires. And the manufacturer said they were inspecting a lot, of the, a lot of the tires, of which we have two of them from the same lot on the orbiter. And they found some blems on these tires, and they don't know whether it's a manufacturing flaw or an aging defect, and we don't know whether it affects the integrity of the tires. But since we knew you were launching tomorrow, we thought we would share this with you. You know, warm regards, B.F. Goodrich, I think who it was at the time. Well, and so, you know, the mission management team threw that on the table and said, hey, we got to go work this. You know, these people, we don't know. They haven't said they're not certifying the tires. They just said they got a problem. So they say, well, that's fine. Mission management team, you know, go work that and let's talk about whether or not it's prudent under these circumstances to go load the tank uh, with some probability that we get all the way down to T minus nine minutes and you folks are going to say, hey, we need to look at more test data on these tires or have more discussions with B.F. Goodrich or whatever and let's not go fly today. So you don't want to load the tank and go through all that if that's what you think the situation is going to be, you know, eight hours away from that, and you've put all that, you've put a cycle on the tank, you've used up a lot of cryos that you can't save because of the heat leak, plus your launch team has put a, a cycle on, depending on the time of day, you know, they've been up all day, all night, or whatever. So that's the kind of issues that you need to make sure get worked, and the mission management team has to handle that, but the launch director has to decide, now, you know, you go work that for another day or two. We're not going to load the tank. Or 
what's your, you know, what's the promise of this coming to fruition, you know, the possibility so that it, it makes sense to go try to fly. We, uh, they, they had, in that case, we went ahead and uh, we tanked. The, uh, the subsystem manager for that, which you may have already heard from, went back to a lot of the test data that they had run on the tires uh, that they had, that had been fairly recent. Langley, I think, was involved in it, and they said, you know, we don't have to worry about those blends being a problem for the tires that are in the orbiter, which, by the way, you don't have any access to at the launch pad. If we were going to change the tires, you'd have to roll back to the orbiter processing facility, and, you know, that would be a couple of months' worth of impact to that flight. So, so we ended up not doing anything with the tires. But it, but it, it had the mission management team really busy for about <laughs> eight hours. So, and this, this process takes about three days, and it, and we have refined those procedures, as you might expect, over the years to, to make this as an efficient and a repetitive a process as we can, in addition to minimizing the hard, you know, the, the, the hazards to the, to the people and the, uh, the, uh, the equipment. At the end of the tanking, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is a good time to do that. Oh, yeah. Yes. No, I, yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, terminal account pay, well, we call it terminal account. After the tank is loaded, half a million gallons of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and, it's, and there's no leaks. And we have leak detectors all over the vehicle. Uh, and we scrubbed a lot of launches because of leaks. Um, the, uh, we give the crew a go to come on out. And if, you know, a crew of seven or eight people, it takes <coughs> an hour and a half to get them all in, get them connected, check their communications and that sort of thing. So roughly three hours before launch, we bring them out. We get them all connected. We close the hatch and we verify the integrity of the crew module. And that's, we're about, we're at clockwise, we're down to T minus 20 minutes. But if it's a rendezvous window, and most of them are now, the launch window is only five to 10 minutes long. So, you know, you gotta, we have to be in phase with the same plane that the space station is in, and we've gotta get in phase with being able to catch the space station or have it catch us. So, you know, the, the launch window is, we don't have enough energy in the shuttle to steer to any orbit we'd like to. So the launch window is only about 10 minutes long. So we put in a long hold at T minus nine minutes um, for those kind of missions. It's the equivalent of the two minute timeout in a professional football game. You know, everybody has a chance to, to review their information, to discuss their strategies. Uh, if it's a long launch window, if it was just a lab mission, then we only wait for 10 minutes at the T minus nine mark. But if it's a short window, we set up the clock such that we, we hold there for almost an hour. And then we do, as you saw on that previous chart, you know, we do a poll of all those people, make sure that they're still go and they're not working any problems or issues. And then we, we start this 
automated <coughs> software program that looks at, in addition to the systems engineers and their consoles looking at all their information, we have an automated program called the ground launch sequencer that looks at all the measurements, all the parameters to make sure that they're within limits. And it issues all the commands to the vehicle and the ground support equipment. And we did that so we could manage the, the repeatability of that process. And yet it takes the human factor button pressing out of the, uh, out of the process as much as possible. And, and, it's, and there's not a lot of work that goes on in there, and there's very little manual work. It's five minutes, the, or the orbiter access arm, their ability to get out of the vehicle in a big hurry is retracted. It takes two to three minutes to pull that back, so we can get it back up to the vehicle in less than 30 seconds, which is it's about the amount of time it takes them to unstrap and get out of there anyway if, we, or if there's a fire or something bad like that that they have to do an emergency egress. They start the propulsion units on the, uh, the orbiter that pressurize the hydraulic system. Just like in an airplane, uh, there's an automated test of all the aero surfaces, like they do on the end of a runway, but this is done by the computer, and it wiggles the elevons and the, and the rudder and the main engines to make sure all of that, that works. And we also start the, the conditioning of the propellant at this the engine interface, and this, they already had the discussion about the main engines. You have to make sure that the quality of the fluid in the external tank and the quality of it that's right there at the injector of the engine is within the temperature and density parameters that the engine was certified at. Because we have to drain the propellant out of the fill lines. And once we've started doing that, that propellant starts heating up right there on those valves that are going to go in the injector and start the main engines on the orbiter. So that limits our ability to stop and hold after that. We're good for four to five minutes after that starts, and that process starts at T minus five minutes. Uh, after that point in time, we're either going to launch or scrub in the next ten minutes. Um, and then we pressurize the oxygen tank, and we pressurize the hydrogen tank, but anywhere in this period of time, we can stop if an engineer or the automated sequencer says, eh, you know, something's out of limits. We'll stop at those milestones and disposition that problem if we can. But for our rules, we won't waive any requirements at that point, even though an engineer may have a perfectly good explanation as to why this temperature pressure or whatever or limit is not being met. If the launch commit criteria, the launch rules say, no, it has to be like this, then we're not going to go launch that day. We won't. After 31 seconds, the, uh, the solid rocket boosters come to life. The, the propellant doesn't ignite, but their hydraulic system is powered up. Their avionics systems are powered up. Their, they, their engine nozzles are checked again in an automatic sequence. And... At 10 seconds, if everything looks good and all these measurements that, that our ground launch sequencer has been looking at, we send up the computer data bus a go to the onboard computers that said all of our stuff has been satisfied. Now, we're still looking at a few things. We're looking at those, those bolts that are holding the, <laughs> the solid rocket motors to the launch pad and the ability to blow the nuts that are holding them. Uh, should that system fail, we would send a cutoff to the onboard computers, regardless of where the engines were in their startup systems, 
sequence, the three main engines, everything will stop. And, and hopefully it will gracefully come to a stop and, and we'll tape all the systems and go from there. But that's the final handshake but that's pre-planned between flight and ground is at 10 seconds when we send a command up to the computer say, we're all go. We can still shut you off. And we can shut you off manually too. If a console operator sees something happening that they think could be, you know, compromise the safety of the launch, they can call for a cutoff and we have a switch that that's cut off, it sends a command to the onboard computers and and it'll stop everything within 10 to 20 milliseconds. Uh, but you don't like to put humans in, uh, in a position to have to make that call and that's why all of the critical stuff is done by the computers. Uh, and I mentioned this, the ground launch sequencer. That's the console uh, and operators in the back of the control room. And they're the ones, by the way, that determine nobody presses a button for launch. A woman in the back of the control room types the liftoff time into the computer when, when the launch director tells her, hey, look, looks like we're going to come out of our T-minus nine-minute hold at this point in time. So here's the liftoff time. Put that in the computer. And after that, it's a hands-off operation. It's what we call a launch database. It's a, it's, a, it's a cable that's connected from the computers in the control room through the liftoff umbilical into the, into the orbiter computers. It's a data frame. And it's a... And when is that connection broken? It lifts off. It lifts off. The uh, onboard computers if will check the health of the main engines. And if the three main engines are within all of their operating parameters, the turbines and the pumps and the temperatures, then it sends a command to those um, eight bolts that hold the, the solid rocket booster to the mobile launch platform and the, and the bolts that hold the, the external tank vent arm to the tank and the two orbiter umbilicals uh, that says fire the nuts, we're going to go. And and that's orchestrated by the onboard computers. And when that happens, you know, you're flying. You know, you're going. The, the command to ignite the igniters on the solid rocket motors is, is sent at that time also by the onboard computers within a couple of milliseconds. Uh, so all that happens at once. And it's an onboard automated thing. Um, I talked about the, uh, the the human factor, the repeatability is is important, and and we, you know, I mentioned you know, I gave the engineers a, you know, I th always threw rocks at them be them because they always want to change things. The launch director's <laughs> responsibility to to manage, they're the owner, so to speak, of the launch count procedures, the 5,000 pages of documentation and the. 500 or so software programs that are executed <coughs> in the launch count process. And we discourage changes to that for obvious reasons. Unless there's a modification to the flight hardware, the ground hardware, or we found something in our previous launch attempts that said, you know, that we either we need to fix this or there's an opportunity to increase the margins, we don't change it. We, uh, uh, we try to maintain that the procedure and the hardware the way it's always been. And it essentially is. 
We do training, obviously, but we train for the non-standard work. You know, we just like in the, the flight team. You know, they, we have a simulation supervisor that throws diabolical failures out there, and we have a computer program that we bring the control <coughs> the into the control center. We bring the launch team, power up the consoles, and their displays look like you know the shuttles at the pad, and it's getting ready to launch, and and we throw failures at them. <coughs> to test their, their reaction and, and to find bugs in our safety procedures. And we've done that over the years. Uh, I think in the, um, the next generation of vehicles, we'll probably have more automation. Uh, and, that, and that'll probably be a better thing, but you'll never take the console operator out of the control center, either the launch control center or the flight control center. You need you need the person there to disposition the, uh, the problem. But uh, it, predictability is, is what we're always after. You know, and, and stable procedures, be they flight or ground, give predictable results. And that's why we automate. And we, uh, <coughs> and we control change, too. Uh, responsibility. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> losing it. I, t I talked about the engineers. Didn't mention, I don't think, technicians and inspectors, but when a technician stamps a procedure that I torqued that bolt and the inspector stamps that same procedure and says, I saw him torque that bolt, that's their warranty that that event really happened. Uh, that's, and that paper trail and that warranty is very important. When, a, when an engineer signs a procedure that tested the flight control system and said, I reviewed all the data, didn't see any glitches, everything met specifications. That signature is his or her warranty <coughs> that the procedure ran correctly and that they understood the requirements that were implemented by that procedure and the requirements were met. And that's, that's important. You know, our whole concept of launch readiness is based on people being responsible uh, for their system. Be it the designer that signs it, that says there's nothing going on offline, there's, <laughs> there's no faxes out there that says there's a cloud over the tires, you know, or my last test of the main engines at Stennis, uh, there was nothing there that says these three engines that are on this orbiter shouldn't work just fine, uh, and they do that in the flight readiness process. That's their warranty and responsibility, and, and, and we hammer this home. <coughs> and it probably comes from, <coughs> I had this quote in my, uh, my office for years, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bore you with it, uh, and maybe some of you can guess where this came from. Responsibility is a unique concept. It can only reside in, in here in a single individual. You may share it with others, but your portion is not diminished. You may delegate it, but it is still with you. You may disclaim it, but you cannot divest yourself of it. Even if you do not recognize it or admit its presence, you cannot escape it. If responsibility is rightfully yours, no evasion or ignorance or passing the blame can shift the burden to someone else. And that's, this is what we push home. And by the way, this quote, anybody, it, it was 
Admiral Rickover, who was testifying before Congress after the first nuclear submarine accident. And he was saying, I'm responsible. It's my program, my submarine, I'm responsible. Even though somebody else was commanding it, it doesn't matter. I'm responsible. And we, and we impressed that on the managers, the engineers, the technicians, the inspectors, you know. You're important, and the work you do is important, and when you sign or stamp that procedure or give a go on the net, that's your warranty, that everything is, is working, and you understand the requirements. Uh, very important, very important in the business uh, that we're in. Decision-making, and on the chart that... Um, This, is, this structure has been in place since the Mercury program. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing new here. Um, it's, and, and the only issue comes in when there's a gray area. Uh, who makes the call? And how much judgment is involved in the call? The, uh, and I, 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 mean, I gave you the example of weather. You know, weather can be, everybody has an opinion on it. It can be judgmental. Well, the weather decision is, if it's launch weather related, it's the launch director's responsibility to determine if it's good enough. If the flight director has an issue with the return to launch site winds, and that ultimately is his or her decision. These people may get involved in it, and they may have offline discussions with the flight director, but it's still ultimately his decision. That's, and, and that's the way it has to be, because they're responsible. This mission management team is not responsible for the, you know, the go-no-go -no -go decision on weather on launch day. It's the flight director for the flight stuff. It's the launch director the launch related stuff and it's set up that way so there's no fuzz on it. other people can have an opinion other people can have input uh, but unless this person up here says launch director we're no go uh, it's the launch director's decision in that case um, communication the um, real importance the and, and I'll give you an example of that. The um, Apollo 13. Some of you, most of you probably don't remember Apollo 13, but Apollo 13 was, was like Challenger and the Columbia, except we didn't lose the flight crew. But it was just as disastrous an event, and by all rights, that the crew shouldn't have made it safely back to Earth, but thanks to the heroics of the flight crew and the flight team and the timing of when that event occurred, uh, they were able to get back home. But that was all caused by activity that was done on the ground uh, well before the launch. And specifically, since I was involved in that, I remember this like it was yesterday. Of course, part of that is an old age thing, stuff that happens 
40 years ago comes in loud and clear. Stuff that happened four days ago, I have a hard time remembering. But <laughs> this is. But, but we had a tank in the in the spacecraft that we ran our our simulated launch count, and back then we put propellants in the vehicle, all the hazardous stuff, and detanked. And we couldn't detank the liquid oxygen out of this tank that fed the, the fuel cells on the on the spacecraft. And the, just a little more history, the tank had been dropped when it was installed back in California, but engineers and managers had, did, did some tests and some rationale on saying, well, it's still okay to install it. So we got it down to Cape, we put the liquid oxygen in it and all the rest of the systems. We couldn't get it out of this tank. And after reviewing it, they found, well, there's a, this standpipe in there that you use to drain it on the ground is probably bent or damaged, and that's why we can't get it out. So the managers and engineers got together for a few days and said, well, turn the heaters on in the tank and vent the liquid oxygen off, heat it up, and it'll boil off as oxygen gas through another loop that takes it through the fuel cells and out of vent on the vehicle and use the heaters to go do that. So they developed a procedure, and we went on station that a night, a week after we had the anomaly, and turned everything on and turned on the heaters and it's fine, you know, the, the, you can see it's turning, the liquid's turning to gas and it's coming out and the console operator in our control room said, hey, Seek, I can't monitor the temperature in this tank anymore. Well, why is that? The temperature, well, the, the range on the temperature is from ambient down to minus 300 degrees because it's measuring liquid oxygen and it's upper limit, you know, it started heating up and now I can't tell you whether it's you know, 50 degrees or 350 degrees. Yeah, said, okay, stop. So we stopped the test. Got all these managers involved, including the people that built the tank, and said, hey, you know, we can't, we've lost visibility. We're putting energy into this tank that has liquid oxygen in it. Uh, we can't monitor the temperature anymore. Pressure seems to be fine. Uh, they said, don't worry about it. There's a thermostat in there. It's heat sensitive. And it'll open up the power to the heaters if it gets to some limit in there. Just keep your eye on the pressure. Make sure the pressure doesn't get too high. Well, of course, the pressure isn't going to get too high because the vent is open. But So we said, fine. So we turned the ground power supplies on and, and let the thing cook for 10 to 12 hours. And what we didn't know was that that thermostat wasn't certified to the voltage we were using from our ground power supplies because we didn't tell them although our requirements allowed it, that we'd crank the power supplies up to 50 volts. And why did we do that? Well, the more energy you put into the tank, the hotter the, the uh, heaters get, and the quicker the liquid oxygen boils off, you know, high school physics. So, but we didn't tell them that. And the people that built the tank and built that thermostat had only certified it to the voltage the fuel cells supply, which is half that value. So the thermostat welded together, the points did, and we had continuous power going on in there for eight to ten hours. It got to eight, nine hundred degrees in the tank. We burned all the insulation off the wires to the fans and the heaters. And from that point on, uh, we're just waiting for something to happen to make those wires come together. And if you then turn power on, you're going to get a spark in an oxygen tank. Not a good thing. Well, that's what happened a day into the mission. Uh, when they were heading to the moon. And they turned the heaters and the fans on to stir the cryogenics because they were worried about stratification and zero gravity. 
and they got the spark and it blew, you know, it blew up the service module. Point is, the communication, we wrote down in our procedures what we did. But we didn't communicate that on a real-time basis. And although we reviewed the procedures afterward, as the rest of the team did, the designer, who was 1,500 miles away, who had approved what we did over an intercom system, didn't review our paperwork. That oh, you, you hit that thing with 50 volts. It's only certified with, for 25 volts, even though our requirements allowed us to use 50 volts. So it's a case where requirements didn't, you know, preclude us from launching hardware that, in hindsight, was flawed. But on the other hand, communication. You know, we didn't tell them in real time, and and as a result, Apollo 13 happened. Uh, so. I learned that lesson early on. You're gonna, I mean, even if you're boring them with what appears to be minutia, <laughs> you're going to tell them everything and document everything. And, and, and thankfully, I mean, they, they went through our procedures and they said, well, there it is, you know. And we got, I thought we'd get fired, and actually we got patted on the back for documenting what we had done. Uh, so it made it easier to zero in on the root cause of the problem. And as a result, we fixed that, and we were able to fly again in, in a few months, uh, as opposed to having to go through a Challenger or Columbia type of uh, uh, activity. Very important. Launch fever. Um, this, the, the human factor, and it's hard to describe what the environment is in the, in the spacecraft you know, a few minutes before launch or in the control room, but there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of energy. And everybody in there for the most part has been awake for the last 10 to 12 hours and they came to work that day or that night with all hopes of safely launching the space shuttle. And they really don't want anything to go wrong, you know, with their system or somebody else's system. I mean, that's, that's the mood. You know, because if something goes wrong, you know, you're, you're going to come back tomorrow or next day or next week. So they really want to hear this. Everybody, you know, when they do the polls, they go, 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 go. That's and, and the hardest thing is saying no when everything sounds like it's go. And there's, there's a lot of times when the launch, we've had a problem with ground support equipment. It's old. Uh, it's I wish we had all new stuff for shuttle. A lot of the stuff is the same we used on Apollo. And in spite of our efforts to maintain it, it's all out in the corrosive you know, atmosphere uh, at the launch pad. And that stuff constantly gives us, gave us problems. Uh, and, and we would lose some of our redundant systems and some of our primary systems. And, and more than once in launch count, when we'd have a problem out there, uh, the team would come to the launch director through that, you know, organization chart you saw and say, hey, we've got an idea. You know, we think if we patch around this and then hook this up to this and we throw these switches and we get this result, uh, it'll be okay. And we can go fly without this power supply being active or this purge system operating normally and all these other things that we've got out there. And, and what you have to do as launch director is say, well, sit back and, and, and analyze whether or not, I mean, you, you rely on your engineers to, 
to use their Yankee ingenuity to, to fix a problem. But you have to assess whether or not they're, they're literally, you know, shotgunning it and coming up with a proverbial quick fix because they want to go home in an hour or so and, and you know, and, and celebrate a good launch. Just like these guys want to get out of those uncomfortable suits they've been sitting in for the last couple hours and either get out of the spacecraft or get up there in zero G. So as a launch director, you have to assess, well, okay, but is this really the right thing to do? Are they working this too hard? If you gave them another 24 hours to look at the data and think about their approach to a fix, uh, would the answer be any different? And, and there's been a few times when we said, well, yeah, that sounds pretty good right now, but I'm going to give you another 24 hours to think about it. So we're going to scrub for the day. And you can hear the big groan in the control room, and, and you can just see it going through their heads, you know. Well, you know, this guy's lost confidence in us. You know, I mean, we all came to work, you know. We get paid to solve problems and get things done, and he's telling us that ain't a good answer. ain't a good fix. So you, you have to... You have to balance that when you're in charge. But the real job of the launch director is to say no when everybody else wants to go. That's really what you're there for because everybody else, these guys, yep, they, they get tunnel vision. You know, they want to go fly. The console operators, you know, they things are on automatic, you know, in that last nine minutes, and they just hope they don't get that little red or yellow light on their screen that says, hey, you better go look at this. It isn't, it isn't working right. What you want to ask, is it okay to launch, is the crew. They'll say yes no matter what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a for we do ask them, by the way, but it's a formality because we know what the answer is. Unless he's got a fire extinguisher up there putting out <laughs> something in the spacecraft, he's going to say we're go. Um, that's, uh, and that's also why we, we put in a rule that after five minutes for these critical launch commit criteria items, the 500 that you absolutely have to look at and certify, you don't proposition us with the change to that after five minutes because we're not going to entertain it. If they're out of limits, we're not going today or tonight. It's going to be at least 24 hours, uh, a long time. But the, the team that, that does, I mean, they're good. They're professionals. And they. Um, and we talk a lot about the Apollo program and, and how great things were back then. But I, mean, I just gave you the example of Apollo 13. You know, we we... The shuttle team versus the Apollo team has a much higher degree of difficulty situation to deal with. There's fewer people on shuttle, yet it's a more complex vehicle than the Apollo, the whole Apollo system. The Saturn V rocket and the spacecraft looks simple compared to the shuttle system. Uh, and, you know, we had 25,000 people at the Cape in the Apollo program flying two to three times a year. Uh, and in the shuttle program back in the early 90s, you know, we flew seven times a year with 6,000 people. With a vehicle that's more complex, older, you know, in the Apollo program, our ground equipment was new and all the flight hardware was new. It wasn't reused. It was fresh, out-of-the-box, factory, pristine stuff. And the requirements were easy. You know, it either it had to act and look brand new or you replaced it. You know, the shuttle, because it's 20, 30 years old, depending on which orbiter and the ground equipment, which is 30 to 40 years old, uh, you know, there's 
there's requirements that allow fair wear and tear. So that you have a lot, the engineers are constantly pushed with the, is this good enough? You know, these wire bundles are frayed and, and there's dings in this line and that weld is looking like it's got corrosion on it. Is it good enough? Well, they're constantly propositioned with that. We're back in the Apollo program, you didn't have to mess with that gray area stuff. It either looked or acted brand new or you replaced it. And replacing it was easy because money was unlimited. As a journeyman engineer on Apollo, I was told, hey, whatever you need, you can have it. You know, system engineer seat, more test equipment. Uh, you need more technicians to be trained on this over here. Whatever you need, just ask for it. Money's not an object. As a manager on the shuttle program, when I finally got promoted out of the job I liked, the launch director, I had to tell the journeyman engineers, hey, this is all the money you get for next year. You got you to be, and be real efficient with this and frugal because next year you're probably going to get less. And, and your strategy and approach to issues is much different if you have those two different environments to deal with. And, and finally, the other thing, you know, that shuttle deals with today versus Apollo is the acceptance of risk. I mean, I already mentioned Apollo 13. Back then, if you made a mistake, you pat it on the back, say, hey, nice try. Now, is there anything, you know, can be done to better enhance your probability of success? Whereas in the shuttle program, you know, risk aversion in this country, you know, get started on that tangent, is becoming more and more our lifestyle. We don't want to do things that we might lose, you know, or we may not win, or we may not be successful. And, and risk is, you know, there's less tolerance to it. And when you have a problem like Columbia or Challenger, you know, you get half a dozen boarding parties coming into NASA saying, here's what you need to do different, or this is wrong with your agency, and this, and this, and, and you need to go fix that. And again, back in Apollo, that's a good place to go. Uh, it was, uh, what do you need to be successful? Much different, and, it's, and it makes it difficult to, uh, to operate. Well, could you comment on risk aversion in the launch director and whether there are differences, whether there are more aggressive or more conservative people who've had your job? Well, it, I, I would say before I was launch director, there was, there was one as a launch director, and, and he was more aggressive than I was. You know, he, would, he was the consummate ops person, and he would push, and he would push until, you know, you'd say, uncle, I surrender, whatever, and then he'd make a judgment call. Um, I, I was more conservative than that. My, uh, my, yeah, my success, they, I trained the one immediately after me, and he was pretty much the same, but, but he got, you know, the highly visible job, management saw that, you know, hey, this guy is good, we'll, you know, we'll take him away from here and go put him over here managing, you know, this large organization and worrying about budgets and contracts, it's the same thing that happened to me. And that's, and that's I mean, that's unfortunate because, uh, but that's, NASA's strongest suit is not succession planning. Unfortunately, it just isn't. Yes. Uh, you say now people, uh, the shuttle program is too risk averse. Because, because you also said that, you know, for example, Nikhil Chavez, the launch director, is too conservative and just saying no when everyone else is saying yes. 
I don't. I no. I wouldn't say that <clears throat> the shuttle program is risk adverse. I'd say our society is risk adverse, and you see some of that permeating into the shuttle program, um, but not to the point where I would say it's you know it's detrimental. I mean, asking questions, uh, digging in to understand what your risks are is an important thing to do. And early in the shuttle program, we didn't do that. We had a lot of confidence in the hardware. After the first few missions, it's just like a new car. You know, you put 5,000 miles on it, you get the bugs out of it, and you fully expect it to last another so many hundred thousand miles. Well, that was the same expectation in the shuttle program. You fly a few flights, and you learn that the tiles really stay glued to the orbiter and the thermal control system really responds as it should on orbit and managing the temperature and the coolant loops and that sort of thing. And you build up confidence and you say, you know, this, this should, it, it should work now. We got the bugs out of it and we can go fly this thing as often as those guys at the Cape can turn it around. Uh, but what they didn't consider and what all these engineers, with all due respect, that you heard from that certify their systems, they didn't totally capture the environment that the shuttle sees over the long period of time in their initial certification. They didn't capture it. And that environment includes not only what happens in space or the calendar exposure to just time on some of these systems that have soft goods in them, for instance, O-rings and that sort of thing, but it's the environment of the Cape with people constantly removing hardware, disconnecting things, moving wire bundles out of the way to get access to this or that other component to implement the requirements that were levied on the Cape to do the test and inspection. And they're very invasive and collateral damage is a, is a way of life when you're crawling around in the orbiter. So, so to, to put in policy that tries to compensate for the fact that the certification didn't capture that environment that this hardware has seen for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, and to reduce the unknowns involved in that is, that's the right thing to do. You know, you're trying to, they're trying to reduce the risk of reflying a very complex vehicle. So, so that's fine, but you take that to a limit, then you can talk yourself into never flying. It'd be pretty easy to go do. And then this recovery after the Columbia accident, uh, that that was starting to happen. You know, the, the managers, because they had this investigation board report that says, you know, NASA, you're, you know, you you became complacent and overconfident. And by the way, I, in my opinion, that's somewhat of a bum rap to, to say that NASA in general, and particularly the shuttle program, had fallen into that mode. But to have the pendulum swing the other way to say, understand what your risks are, and then you can have knowledge on whether you decide to accept it or not. That's, that's a good thing. But what didn't happen after Columbia, what, what we did do after Challenger is after we understood the root cause of the accident and some of the other factors like communication that were, were part of that, reviewed all the systems, all the requirements, the manager said, look, we're willing to accept some risks. You people who are responsible for these systems and these processes at the Cape, you need to you need to quantify that for us and bring it to us, and we'll either say, 
okay, we don't accept that. You go back and change your system or change your limits or do more tests or whatever, or we will accept it. You know, we'll say, we'll accept that risk. Management will accept some risk. That happened after Challenger, and we were able to fly again you know, two, roughly two years later uh, after we recertified the design of the solid rocket motors. That didn't happen after Columbia. And, and you, I, you can speculate whether or not, you know, we could have flown six months ago or a year ago, or we should have waited longer to fly because we still had a piece of foam come off the tank. Uh, you could debate that, but it, management never acknowledged that they were willing to accept some risk after Columbia. They did say, tell us what the risk is, uh, but we really want you to crank it down to zero. We don't want to take any, any risk. Unlike, unlike Challenger. Um, now, is that, you know, is that bad? I don't, uh, see what really happened with Columbia was there were, you know, the mission management team, you know, their discipline had eroded and there was communication issues and if, you, if you're a student of that, of that investigation, um, they didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't grade out very well, but the, the investigation said, you know, there's complacency and overconfidence in the system. Well, having been part of the system prior to my retirement five years ago, that you never found any complacency or overconfidence with the engineers, the technicians, or inspectors, or the managers that I knew. Now, they weren't as smart as they thought they were, or in some cases as smart as they needed to be, but that's not the same as complacency or overconfidence, because the latter to me implies an attitude problem, that I've got it knocked, I know it all, you know, I'm as smart as I need to be. And I never sensed, for the most part, you know, there's some people I didn't like because I thought he or she was arrogant or something like that, but I never sensed an attitude problem with the shuttle team and, you know, from the technicians, many of which I knew and grew up with to the top managers in the shuttle program. I never, I never sensed that. But were we not as smart as we thought we were or as smart as we needed to be? Were there, were there signs that, you know, there's something going on here that you ought to, you ought to go fix? Uh, yes. But again, you know, they, they, uh, they didn't just blow off, so to speak, uh, these problems we were having with foam on the tank and these other systems, which to me would have been, that's complacency or overconfidence. Uh, anything else? I've got uh, two announcements. Um, I've been working with the Stellar people. Uh, as you know, some of the PDF files that I've tried to load didn't load. Um, they can't really figure out why, but I've sent them the files. They've loaded most of them on. So hopefully almost everything is there. We're continuing to work at it, uh, but hopefully all the things that you need access to, uh, you can find. Um, and uh, I said there were two things, but that's the only one I remember. Well, let me uh, close with one note then. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, thanks for your choice to uh, uh, pursue an engineering career. Uh, doing things that are hard. I've found it in, in my travels that uh, unfortunately there's fewer people deciding to uh, 
to pursue the tough curriculums and the occupations that require a lot of work and have some risk associated with them. Uh, but uh, uh, it's encouraging to see people in graduate school that, that want to do uh, what I did. I'm not sure how much engineering I did in my 40-year career. I, you know, I did a lot of managing and, uh, and a lot of other assignments. But um, I'm sure you can accomplish a lot. I, have, I, I had a grandmother who, um, who was born at the end of the uh, uh, 19th century. And, and when she was your age, there weren't um, any computers, airplanes, cars, you know, TV and that sort of thing. Yet in her lifetime, she got to see her favorite grandson, Bobby, help put a man on the moon. You know, now I don't know what it can be done in your lifetime, but you, 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 know, you can make great things happen with the career you've chosen. So, thanks for choosing it. Really. Right. Pleasure.